Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Laura Tenike of Indian Ladder Farmstead Brewery and Cidery to talk about her experience with hop farming. Laura operates Indian Ladder Farmstead Brewery and Cidery in Altmont, New York with her husband Dietrich. The two have been growing hops and brewing beer at home while working to restore the local hop production in the Northeast. Their orchard has been in the Tenikes family for four generations and she and Dietrich have lived there for more than 25 years growing fruits and vegetables for sale to restaurants, gardening extensively and raising animals including sheep for meat and wool dairy goats for milk, and chickens for eggs and meat. Laura is also the author of The Hop Grower's Handbook, the essential guide for sustainable, small-scale production for the home market, published by Chelsea Green. Welcome to the show today, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to where you're at now? Okay, well, my family has an apple orchard um, in upstate New York, and I've lived most of my life there. My husband and I met and when we were in school in Boston, and then we uh-huh. moved back to the farm oh, and nice. uh, lived and worked on the, on the farm for, for many years. A few years ago, we decided to start growing hops. And which we had grown them, you know, in our garden for many, many years. Uh-huh. But we decided to start trying to grow them commercially. And that led us down the path of learning about uh, growing hops in the Northeast, which hasn't been done for almost a century as they're no longer raised on a large scale like they used to be. Right. Part of that process ended up writing a book for Chelsea Green called The Hop Grower's Handbook. Nice. Um, we're now using the hops that we grow as well as malting barley that we grow. Uh, to make beer uh, in a farmstead brewery, and mm-hmm. we're also making hard cider and uh, helping uh, my family with the continued operation of the orchard and our farm store. Mm-hmm. Wow, cool. All right, so for those of us that don't know, I mean, I have an idea, but what is a hop? <laughs> 
okay, well, a hop is the the hop that is the the product, the crop, uh-huh. um, is the flower of a hop vine. Okay, it's not called a vine with a V; it's a vine with a B, oh, which I can talk about later. Uh-huh. Um, but it's a very very big uh, vine that grows up a trellis system very tall mm-hmm. and and when it flowers those flowers are very fragrant and they're filled with essential oils and oh. various aromas they're used in making beer that's what provides the bitterness and the aroma oh, to beer interesting okay yeah. and and so you mentioned a term not vine you said bine <laughs> Right. Well, that's one of those horticultural details. A vine is a plant that grows by climbing. Right. Um, it sends out tiny little tendrils, you know, sort of like little corkscrews, uh-huh. and uses those to grasp onto oh, right. things like nearby plants or walls or or uh, trees to climb. And a vine uh, does something different. It's the the stem of the plant itself sort of spirals around. Oh, um, it doesn't have tendrils. It spirals around uh-huh. and climbs that way. Got it. Great. So now we kind of got an idea of what a hop is. How did you become a hop farmer? Okay. Well, my husband and I have always been interested in beer. Uh-huh. We've grown hop plants in our garden for about 25 years learning about, you know, how they grow, uh, using hops to make beer at home. Recently in New York State, there a new law was passed that allows uh, farms to make beer, beer being an agricultural product like wine, and uh, we saw an opportunity to begin to grow hops commercially as well as to open a brewery. And uh, so we started out planting a small pilot hop yard uh, with the trellis system to see how it was to grow, say, instead of maybe two or three plants, to grow maybe 30 plants, uh-huh. and uh, went from there, and it gradually expanded to now where we have just over an acre of hops, and you, which is about a thousand, a thousand hops. A thousand hop plants? Yes. Oh, interesting. So, and you, you must actually have to construct these structures to put, to, to hold them up, Yes. Exactly, because hops are a hop plant is a perennial, can live for 25 to 30 years. They grow very, very large. Oh, wow. And to get the maximum amount of hop flowers off the plant, you know, to make it commercially viable as a crop, uh-huh. um, you the recommended height, and which is what our hop trellis is at, is 18 feet. So uh, it, putting in a, a commercial hop yard involves putting up many wooden poles that uh-huh. are 18 feet high above the ground and then stringing a cable system along the tops of those poles right. to support the hop plants. Oh, wow. How cool is this? I And, you know, I know I've heard of hops before, but quite honestly, I don't even know what it contributes to beer. So what is what does a hop contribute to the beer? Okay, well, a hop flower inside that a hop flower looks almost like a little pine cone except it's really bright green uh-huh. and it's got you know sort of the scales of a pine cone if you can imagine that uh-huh. the hop flower has these papery bright green leaves mm-hmm. that are sort of um, put together in the same way and when you open up the hop flower which is also r- referred to as a cone Inside, there is a very sticky yellow resinous substance that's called lupulin, uh-huh. and that is 
like growing in between the petals and along the core of the plant. And that lupulin contains two different kinds of acids called alpha acids and beta acids and also essential oil. Uh-huh. And those, those things are what contain all the compounds that give beer different levels of bitterness oh. and also different very uh, fragrant aromas. Right. They also have other properties in addition to the aroma and the bittering. Um, they have medicinal properties are contained in these compounds. They are very useful in a lot of different ways. Also, sort of going along with the medicinal property, they have a preservative property, sort of antibacterial property mm-hmm. that can be used. Oh. Uh, one of the reasons why people first started using hops was they realized that back in <laughs> the olden days uh-huh. that it made the beer keep longer. Oh, interesting. So there's a pre- preserving property to them. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So if I heard you correctly, and let me repeat this back, that resin that is in the hops is what you use to actually make the beer with. Yes. Oh, interesting. All right, cool. So, and and actually that kind of leads to my next question. So I think we already got the answer, but I want to ask it anyways. And what is it about hops that make them good for brewing beer? Well, because of the, the beta acids uh-huh. provide aroma, and, um, mm. you know, when you smell a beer, it's sort of oh, like yeah. when you smell a wine. There's all uh-huh. kinds of complicated smells there. And um, those smells are coming from largely from the hops. Mm-hmm. There's all different varieties of hops, and each different variety has its own unique characteristics. Uh, the alpha acids are what provide the bitterness. And some of the very hoppy beers, uh, like an India Pale Ale, are, can be extremely bitter. And um, that's coming from the alpha oh, acids. Oh, interesting. And then the essential oils also contribute to the flavor and aroma mm-hmm. in, in different ways. Interesting. So what, what am I not asking you here now that, that we need to know about hops? I know there's another <laughs> question that I should be asking you. Well, what happens in between putting the hop plant in the ground uh-huh. and having the final product that the brewer uses to put in the beer right. is a, a whole range of activities and a fairly complicated process. And, you know, what, and, and so, you know, the growing is what we wrote the book about, like how you grow hops. Uh-huh. Also, not only is there the, the growing of the hop, but once the fl- hop flowers are picked, there is a processing that has to be done. They have to be dried. Uh-huh. In some cases, they're pelletized. In, in very large commercial settings, sometimes mm-hmm. the oils and the acids are actually extracted from from the hop itself and uh, used and sold in, you know, like a liquid form. Right. So there's many steps in between planting the hop in the ground and getting getting the hop product that you put into the beer. Yeah. And that has been a big part of our experience is learning all those things. The hops in where we live in New York State, uh-huh. uh, actually New York State used to be the largest producer of hops in the country. Oh, wow. And in the late 1800s was, was the major producer of hops. We lost hop production from New York because a variety of environmental factors causing disease and insect infestations. Mm-hmm. Um, as people started to m- migrate west, they took their hops with them and actually ended up, One, a few people in particular ended up in the uh, Yakima Valley of Washington State, oh, which is a high right. desert, yep. and found that with the 
the water that they could irrigate with um, and the very dry atmosphere there, that they were able to very successfully grow hops without a lot of the disease and insect pressure that oh, nice. we have on the East Coast. Right. So all of hop per- commercial hop production moved to the Northwest, and that's in the United States pretty uh, much where it remains. Yeah, exactly. Now that there's, with the local foods movement, uh, has sort of infiltrated the craft beer craze, mm-hmm. and artisan brewers are looking for local ingredients, so people are starting, us included, to grow hops again in the Northeast. Um, and they're, we are relearning something that hasn't been done in the area for you know, over a century. Wow. And there's, a, there's challenges that we can't necessarily learn from the growers in the Northwest because their environmental conditions there are extremely different. Oh, right. And they have different insect pests and they have, you know, it's very dry, whereas in, you know, upstate New York, for example, it's very wet. So, but we're also finding good things that the hops that we are growing here, you know, there's something of a, the element of terroir where oh, we can plant yes. the same hop variety mm-hmm. here in the Northeast that they grow in the Northwest, and the end product has different characteristics. For example, a lot of the hops that we're growing in the Northeast have much higher levels of essential oils, oh. which is something that brewers have been really interested in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we also in the Northeast have a very high density of craft brewers, and they're, you know, interested in wanting to use the local products right. to make things that are unique yeah. to their region. Wow. Cool. All right. So don't know a lot about making beer. So now I have hops. How do I get beer? <laughs> well, basically, the ma- hops are, in terms of the products that go into making beer, uh-huh. you basically have, they're, they're very simple. There's water, which is the thing that is obviously the largest in volume. Right. Then you have your grain, which is a malted grain. Mm-hmm. And um, in general, it's barley, but you can also use other grains. And that's those are the bulk. And then you have the hops. I like to compare the grain is like when you're baking. The grain is like the flour. Right. The hops is like the spice, the cinnamon or the uh, nutmeg. Um, you use it in much smaller amounts relatively right. than to the grain, but it's providing a lot of intense flavoring and characteristics that are really take pretty high profile given the small amount of the of the hop that you actually add. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the yeast that causes the, the fermentation process mm-hmm. to begin. And so, you know, that's that's uh, basic the very in a very basic way what it takes to make beer. Plus, right. there's obviously time and temperature, mm-hmm. and those variables result in different types of beers. Fantastic. So there's an interesting question on my list here. Do hops have any medicinal uses? Yeah, they do. And um, they were originally used medicinally and not really to make beer, um, you know, in, in Europe. Um, hops are actually native all to various parts around the world. Uh-huh. Uh, they were growing wild when Europeans first started collecting them. They were used medicinally. Some of the compounds in the hop are soporific, so they can make you very sleepy, and oh. so they're used to treat insomnia. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, people have take dried hop flowers and use them to stuff pillows oh. so that people who are insomniac can sleep on a hop pillow, and mm-hmm. that the smell and the odor of it will help help you sleep. As I said before, they're preservatives, they're antibacterial, 
So they can be used to treat wounds and to prevent infection, as well as to, you know, make certain like food products like beer. Right. Well, it's a food product, it's yeah. a beverage, uh, to, to last longer, to prevent from spoiling. One of the compounds in hops is, is a phytoestrogen, mm-hmm. which means that it's not like the hormone estrogen, but it mimics it. Right. And so it's, there's a, you know, not really an old wives tale, but a, a folk saying that it, nursing mothers should drink beer and it helps the milk to be released for the baby. Mm-hmm. And this is actually true because the phytoestrogens stimulate uh, the milk glands to right. have the milk flow more, more easily also used to treat uh, menstrual symptoms as well as symptoms of menopause. Mm. On the flip side, the phytoestrogen in beer can have negative uh, effects for men, perceived negative effects. Some old folk wisdom from when people all used to work in the hop yard harvesting all the hops by hand is that men will start to grow breasts if they're overly exposed to hops. Uh And in some cases, uh, it can cause impotence in men. Uh, referred to as the brewer's droop. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. So the but you know it's a little unclear because also uh, excessive consumption of alcohol can result in the similar symptoms. There so you go. We don't know. Right. Uh, you know what the real source of these problems might be, uh-huh. but it's been thought that brewers and people who worked in hop yard men in particular these were you know things they had to watch out for. Yeah. Can you give us some history on how hops came to be used in beer? Yeah, you know, like in the very early, I don't know what to say, like 1200, 1300, uh-huh. you know, in Europe, the people made beer with a variety of herbs. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it, they all had their own, it was sort of a, you know, trade secret. Different people who made beer had different combinations of herbs that they used. Uh-huh. And this was really referred to as Groot, which is kind of spelled G R U I T. And these herbal blends added various flavors. It's thought that in some cases they added various intoxicating effects, even hallucinogenic effects, and that beer was, you know, a very different product. Uh, hops were one, eventually became one of the array of herbs that were used in making beer. Uh-huh. And, you know, beer was made by monasteries primarily. Oh, I uh, remember hearing that along the way. Yeah, and so, you know, the monks were known to be scientists and running long-range experimental uh-huh. plans of uh, experiments of many different things. And one of the things they started to notice was that the beer that they, when they used hops in the blend to make beer, the beer kept longer. And oh. so as they switched over to using uh, hops for this reason, it enabled the trade in beer to expand greatly because it could be transported over further distances. And it eventually became to the point where, you know, like a beer was actually developed, which is really popular. I think I mentioned before the India Pale Ale is a style of beer. Well, this was a very, very heavily hopped beer that was made specifically in Britain to export to their colony in India um, so that it could survive the sea voyage because it had so much hops in it. And that was, you know, an example of how the whole thing got going. When, you know, hops did grow uh, native in the United States. When colonists came over from Europe to the United States, they brought hops with them as well and grew them and commenced making beer. These hops crossbred with 
the hops that were already growing wild on the North American continent right. and started to create some varieties of hops that were unique to North America. Very strong, very pungent, you know, as part of all of these flavor profiles of hops, there's some types of flavors that are considered undesirable. Uh-huh. Um, cat piss is one of them. Oh, it smells right. like cat urine. Yeah, I don't uh, want that so in that a beer, be right? undesirable yeah. uh, hops <laughs> for beer. However, traces of some of these extreme flavors got into the hops that Americans grew and became accustomed to, and the Europeans were kind of horrified by the extremeness of some of the hops coming out of North America. Uh, however, some of them also had disease-resistant uh, attributes that became desirable in terms of breeding new varieties. Right. So, you know, there, there's hundreds and hundreds of different varieties of hops, and there's people are always developing new ones for ver- to achieve various purposes mm-hmm. um, for specific flavors, specific aromas, to be tolerant of certain types of disease, to grow better in certain types of climates, to have higher yields. So, you know, and entered the whole agricultural, you know, scientific world and and people have really taken the natural features and run with it to create a lot of different types of right to enhance whatever they want to out of that plant yep Mm -hmm. okay so can you tell us how a hop plant grows sure a hop plant is well it's a perennial it it basically reproduces um from a rhizome okay which is Uh part of the root system it's sort of an underground stem right and when you plant a hop generally you will plant a piece of the rhizome. You can also propagate it from cuttings. But let's just use the rhizome example for and, now. And, um, and when, you, piece, when you say rhizome, it's really a piece of the root, right? It's, it's sort of part of the root, mm-hmm. um, construction of the root, but it doesn't function as a root. The rhizome is not necessarily absorbing up nutrients. Got and it. working like a root, it's really more like a stem and it's sprouting buds. Oh, cool. All right. But it looks like a root. It's like a little woody stalk. Uh And so you get your rhizome and you put it in the ground and it will not not take too long before it'll start sending up shoots. Mm -hmm. And these shoots, as I said, it's a vine. So they'll immediately start looking for ways to climb. And if you don't Mm. provide it with a vertical support system or if there's nothing nearby, like a garden fence or the side of your house or, you know, a stick in the pot, it will spread outwards continuously searching for something to climb. Oh, interesting. Um, So you really, you know, start training it to climb upright if you want maximum production and you don't want it to, like, take over the entire world. Uh Um, (laughs) Train it to grow straight up and new shoots will come from the ground and you'll prune those away and try to get the plant to focus its energy into climbing. And so it climbs up its support system. Um, In a commercial hop yard, it will go as high as, go up to 18 feet tall. Mm-hmm. It takes a couple of years to become big enough plant to actually reach that height. It won't reach that height in its first year. Right. But once it gets to the, you know, its full height, which is usually around the summer solstice, the, the change in day length after the solstice happens, right. it, it triggers the plant to send out side shoots. Instead of going up, it starts growing side shoots. Oh, and it's on these shoots that the flowers will form. Uh-huh. And I should say that commercially, hops, we only grow female plants. Uh, Those are the plants Mm. that produce the cones that contain the product that the brewers want. 
So basically all of the plants in a hop yard are going to be female. If, you, if a male plant crops up, you want to remove it. You don't want the male plant to start producing pollen and have all of the female flowers uh, fertilized and start producing seeds because brewers don't want seeds Got it. in their hop flower. Right. Okay. Anyway, they'll, they'll send out the side shoots, and the first when the flower first forms, it's called a burr. It's like a tiny little pom-pom, uh-huh. and it gradually grows, and as I described before, into sort of a pine cone shape. Some varieties are, the flowers are fairly small. Some varieties, they're quite large. When the flowers become mature, mm-hmm. it's time to harvest them because so- these plants are 18 feet tall. When you harvest them, you have to cut the whole vine down and the flowers have to be picked off the vine. If you have a lot of plants, like in a commercial hop yard, the flowers are removed mechanically using a hop harvester. Uh-huh. If you're just doing a few plants, or as they did it in the olden days before we had all this mechanization, people pick the flowers off by hand. It takes a long time to hand pick a hop plant, a mature hop plant. It probably take one person about an hour to pick all the flowers off. Right. So in a commercial operation, you will have a harvesting machine and you will run the vine through the machine and these metal fingers will sort of claw at the vine and all of the flowers will come off and hmm. then you go from there. But you, um, so, but you told you said earlier, I thought that it was a perennial, which means it lives year after year. Yes. So when you cut the vine, you'll leave like about three feet coming out of the ground. Right. And so that will continue to grow and photosynthesize for the remainder of the growing season. And then when the hard frost comes, what's above ground will freeze and die. Uh And the root system, the root and rhizome system below ground will continue to live and go dormant during the winter. And then in the spring, it will send up shoots again. I should say the nature of the hop is that it can only be grown it can't be grown too far south. It can't be grown on the equator because it relies on the change in the length of days, oh, yes. the seasonal change, right. in order to flower. Mm-hmm. And um, it's if it doesn't have that, it won't be stimulated to flower. So um, you can't grow them too far south. Oh, interesting. All right. I was just going to wrap up the cycle by saying that after the hops are picked off the vine, um, they can be used fresh to make what's called a fresh hop or a wet hop ale. Uh-huh. Um, oh. But it, in general, they have to be used almost immediately. Otherwise, the, the compounds in the lupulin start to degrade. So if you're not going to do a fresh hop beer with them, then they have to be dried. Oh. And um, this is a process in and of itself. They have to be dried at a fairly low temperature, which means it takes a fairly long, long period of time. Yeah in order to stabilize the alpha and beta acids and the oils. Mm-hmm. And then they have to be stored in a vacuum-sealed um, oh my container. Uh-huh. Um, they should probably be frozen so they don't oxidize, because if they oxidize, then the compounds in the hop break down and they become right. less powerful. In many cases, people will grind them up and press them into pellets like you would have pellets say for rabbit food right and those are very compressed and they're easy to measure it's very easy for brewers to use them so that's another oh, interesting form of the end product and obviously they're they're okay for beer if they're compressed like that yes it's oh. brewers the trend right now is brewers actually prefer to use them pelletized because when you use the whole cone in a in a 
big batch of beer. Uh-huh. Uh, when it's boiling in the beer, they break the flowers break up and all the little petals get everywhere. Oh, right. And it's a really big cleanup job. And so it creates a lot of extra work for the brewers. But mm-hmm. some of them like to have the whole hops and I'm sure they, they want to work with it in yeah. more of a, a less processed state. I'm sure there's a different taste flavor that comes with that. A matter of great debate. Oh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. So how do you grow and process hops on a small scale then? <laughs> well, that's been part of the learning curve. Um, if you're small, there's this sort of, you know, situation where if you're small, like really small, like you have maybe 10 plants uh-huh. and uh, you, it's not too bad at all. You can just have, you know, some friends come over and cut down the vines and pick the flowers off and, mm-hmm. and dry them, say, on a screen with some box fans, All you know, right. in uh-huh. your garage. Yep. And then um, get some of those Ziploc vacuum sealer bags and fill them up, you know, just like you would put, mm-hmm. and put them in your freezer. And then you can use them to make homebrew. Oh, or you can right. give them to your local brew pub and they can do a special batch of beer. Mm-hmm. Once you get to a point where you have, you know, more than, say, 20 hot plants, the harvesting becomes a major issue. Oh, I'll bet. Um, because you, it's hard to get, you know, when we first started out, we would call our friends and say, you know, we've got a keg of beer, come over, we'll harvest <laughs> the hops. And they'd all happily come. Right. And they'd harvest the hops. And then the next year, we would say, ask them to come again. And the hop plants were even bigger and there were even more flowers. And we had planted more plants, and so by the third year, they're like, no, no, don't call us. We don't want to come. (laughs) It's too much work. Right. So at that point, what we did was buy a mechanical hop harvester. Um, Ah. The first mechanical hop harvester we bought, unfortunately, was uh, flawed. It didn't work. So we took a big loss on that. Uh Uh, We went on and bought another one. Uh, The thing is, there's not a lot of small-size mechanical hop harvesters. So the one we bought is really way too big for what we need. It came from Germany. Oh, wow. Retrofitted. It's like from the 1970s. Uh-huh. A brand called the Wolf Hop Harvester. So because there's lots of small hop farms like us cropping around in our area, we had um, become sort of a regional harvesting facility. I was so, wondering if that was coming. Good for you. Yeah, so we have it in our barn, and uh-huh. the other hop growers, most of whom are smaller than us, can you know cut their hop vines in the morning, load them into their pickup truck, throw a tarp over them, come down, feed them through the machine, take back their bags and bags of hop flowers back to their farm and do their drying there uh-huh. and that's the way we've been working it nice i love cooperative things like that you know and that's that's <laughs> our our we need to recreate our local food economies so that we're working yeah. together like that yes very similar to how you know in the olden days there would be a mill and yep. everybody would bring their grain exactly. to the mill and take away their flour how cool is that? that's got to be a fun time of year when that's happening doesn't it it's very exciting. You know, there's a lot of pressure because it all is very time sensitive. Oh, I'm sure. Um, there's certain a point at which different varieties are, like with apples, picked at different times. Right. Um, they ripe. Some are early. Some are late. Uh-huh. Um, it actually gets pretty technical when to assess the optimum time to pick the hop because you want to get it when the 
alpha and beta acids and essential oils are at their peak before mm-hmm. they start to degrade. So there's a lot of, um, you know, monkeying around trying to figure out when that is. Right. And, you know, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> no kidding. So what's involved in scaling up? Well, like I said, with the mechanization, that's a big issue. Oh, yeah. Um, you can't really plant any more plants than you can pick the hops off of. The other factor is the drying. Um, mm. It's actually the drying that is really the real bottleneck because they have the drying is very important. You can, if you dry them too quickly, you can destroy them. If, you, if it takes too long, they'll <laughs> get moldy wow. and they'll be destroyed. Yeah. So you need to have another piece of equipment called a kiln. Now this can be designed on a small scale or a larger scale, but um, basically it's something that's going to provide heat and air circulation. Mm -hmm. And people are tempted, you know, what's the limiting factor is space. How many hops can you fit in there to dry? Got it. And how long is it going to take? So if it's going to take eight hours to dry, say, the hops off of 10 binds, you can't harvest any more hops until the ones that are in the dryer are dry and exit the dryer. Right. So this is uh, one of the things that, you know, we struggled with the last couple of years. And um, not having enough drying capacity will slow down your harvest. And one of the temptations across, you know, hop farms historically and around the world has been to try to speed up the process by raising the temperature. Uh And when you dry them too quickly, the oils and the acids start to break down and then you lose the quality of the product so it's sort of a, a delicate balancing act wow no and kidding. it takes a while to figure out you know how much hops are you producing how much drying capacity do you need so that you can harvest everything before it starts to sit on the vine too long and go downhill right you know so it gets complicated wow cool so you have a book that you published through Chelsea Green. I love the books that Chelsea Green puts out, by the way. It's the Hop Grower's Handbook, The Essential Guide for Sustainable Small-Scale Production for Home and Market. Can you tell us about the book? Yes. Well, basically, you know, when we first started growing hops, we were looking for resources. Most of the resources about growing hops are produced by universities in the Northwest, mm-hmm. uh, providing research for very large-scale hop growers in Washington and Oregon. Uh-huh. We found that the, those were really not of a lot of use to us because the conditions and the insect pests that we were dealing with in right. the Northeast are completely different. Um, so we wanted to write a book that would sort of take people through not only talk about our experiences, we sort of went up this learning curve and scaled up ourselves and the different obstacles we encountered, but just to for people on a small scale to understand before they planted the plant um, what the sort of life cycle of the plant was and what the various, you know, how to cultivate it. Um, there's a lot of issues regarding nutritional needs. It's a plant that takes a tremendous amount of nitrogen. Oh, wow. It's also a plant that can be vulnerable to some fungal diseases like Mm -hmm. downy mildew. So we wanted to sort of lay out the whole process for people so they could understand what they were getting into, you know, before they put in a bunch of hops. Whereas for us, we just put in a bunch of hops. (laughs) And then then we had to figure it all out. Yeah, exactly. And we thought it really should work the other way around. So that was our purpose in writing the book. And it was also a lot of fun to do it. And we we went out west and we visited some of the really big hop farms. We visited some of the small hop farms on the, the east coast. 
and talked to a lot of different people and about their experiences and tried to weave our own story in and make it amusing as well. So, nice. Yeah. Cool. And so that's that's available through Chelsea Green. And how do, how do people find your book? Well, you can go to the Chelsea Green website, which uh-huh. is chelseagreen.com. And the book is called The Hop Grower's Handbook. You know, the easiest thing to do is just Google the Hop Grower's Handbook. And Perfect. since there really aren't any others, it'll just come right up. Exactly. And you can click on the link to Chelsea Green. Perfect. And you can buy it right there. All right. Plus, we'll have it uh, a link on the show notes page for you. Uh, Great. For your, for your show. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you tell us what other projects you're currently working on? Well, you know, the India Modern Farmstead Brewery and Cidery is something that my husband and I and our uh, partner, Stuart Morris, have been working on for the last couple of years to launch this sort of, it's a business within a business. It's mm-hmm. on my family's farm, um, but it's an independent business, but we're also using all ingredients grown on the farm. Nice. In addition to making beer with our hops and the malting barley that we're growing and other fruits we're using in the beer like blueberries and rhubarb. Um, we're also making hard cider. Um, it is an apple orchard. We do uh-huh. make sweet cider. So we're taking that cider and fermenting oh, it and then nice. flavoring that actually in some cases with hops. Uh-huh. So we're opening, we've done a little wholesaling, but we're opening for business for people to, you know, actually walk in and buy pints and growlers and do sampling um, in May. Uh-huh. I think in the beginning of the conversation, we talked about myself being the fourth generation of my family oh, yeah. on Indian How Ladder cool Farm. Is that? Um, my great-grandfather started the farm in 1916, so this is actually our 100th anniversary of the farm. Oh, I just um, got chills. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So my father, who's 77, has decided he's finally going to retire, uh-huh. and um, my brother and I are slowly taking over some of the management of the business, so uh-huh. we're moving it out of the domain of the third generation into the domain, domain of, of the, the fourth, fourth generation. generation. Oh, wow. uh, working cool. with the staff, we're very fortunate to have a very good staff that's been with the business for a very long time, so we're moving into this new terrain. and. Nice. Um, you know, we hope to be able to pass the farm on to the fifth generation, yeah. of which cool. we have several girls and one boy who are, you know, in college and high school, so we don't know what they're yeah. going to do, but nice. we'll, farm will still be around for them to decide. Oh, so. how cool is that? Fantastic. Yeah. What a great story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Sure. So I'm going to shift on you a little bit, and I want for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Okay. Well, you know, relating to the subject at hand, which was the growing of hops, Uh one of the failures that we had was um, not being able to plan far enough ahead to have the adequate uh, harvesting and drying equipment that we needed in order to fully harvest Uh our crop. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, it was a failure because we lost quite a bit. The problem is that in hop towards the end of the season, mm-hmm. you know, the, the disease pressure can pick up, the insect pressure of can course. pick up. Yep. And sometimes what, you know, as I spoke about there being the optimum time to harvest the hops in terms of the quality of the, the hop itself, but the optimum time can also be just before the hop gets destroyed oh. by, you know, the Bugs. invasion of two-spotted yeah. spider mites that's moving in. Right. And if you don't have enough uh, drying capacity, you're trying to 
process this big crop through this tiny little crevice, you know, yeah. where you can only dry it so much. So we did lose quite a bit of our crop last year due to this situation. Uh, you know, we're we're fixing the problem by having adequate drying capacity for this harvest. Uh-huh. What we would have done differently, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, it, it's always great if you can plan so far ahead that nothing ever goes wrong and you never have any problems. <laughs> right. But in my experience and sort of my attitude is you got to learn by doing. Yeah. And if you sit around planning for too long, you'll never do anything. Yep. And sometimes it's best just to jump in. So I would have to say in spite of everything, I don't think I probably would have done anything differently. Because nice. we would have been so intimidated by all the things we had right. to do that we might not have done it at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, cool. So what do you consider your biggest success? The biggest success? In growing hops is is just is doing it at all. Um, oh, it's been good. a tremendously <laughs> huge undertaking, and there's been so much to learn. Writing the book was a huge success for me because it, uh, in the midst of doing all of the growing the hops, to actually sit down and write a book was tremendously challenging <laughs> uh-huh. and something I'd never done before. So I feel really proud about having done that, and I feel really proud about um, having. Uh, learned as much as we've learned by doing and by getting out and talking to people and taking risks and uh, learning. Nice. What drives you? I guess what drives me is uh, wanting to keep the farm that I'm on going, um, not to give in to the endless pressure of, you know, suburban sprawl in our area Uh where everything is just slowly giving way to becoming the same commercial strip of Walmarts and Burger Kings and, you know, that that you just see wherever you go, just trying to hang on to what we've got in the face of, you know, the encroaching quote unquote progress. Right. And, you know, have land where we can grow food and grow things that we need and, um, and just to continue to live in the real world and not just be absorbed by the artificial world. Yeah. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there one book that has been influential in your gardening life or your hops life or, you know, what, what, what is there, what one book out there is just like hit it home for you? Well, I think it was a book I read really when I first started in college. Um, and it's not really about agriculture. It's more about the natural environment and people's place in it. And that was called The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Ooh. And um, it's basically, you know, she's she's older now. And this, when she wrote this book, she was probably, I think she was like in her 20s. Uh-huh. Just about one, one person being out, walking around in the fields, in the woods, and looking and seeing what was in the natural world and observing it and uh, being, you know, in awe of it and just being present. Um, and 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 looking at what's around you and and appreciating it and thinking about it and she just wrote it all down in a very powerful way that was sort of knocked me over the head made me <laughs> open my eyes more. I always love that when that happens. So it's called the Pilgrim at Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And we will have that uh, link on our uh, show notes page as well. But that would be great. It's a you know it's a famous book, but I think that. I don't know that people are reading it so much lately, so yeah. I highly recommend it. I'm going to go get it and read it. I'm looking for something new to read. So, Oh, I think you're going to love it. Thanks. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would say, you know, I sort of mentioned it before, but 
if you're thinking about doing something and uh, you're interested in a, a new idea or a new way of life, get out there and do it. And it's okay if you screw it up. Do it and learn as you're doing it. And yeah. as you've realized you made mistakes, then fix them. Don't don't just sit and plan and plan and plan. Just get out there and do uh-huh. and learn by learn by doing. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing with your, your experience with us today, Laura. It's been a treat to chat with you. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I think the best thing to do is to email me. I'll give you my email address. My name is a little odd, so I'll have to spell it so it doesn't get confusing. Um, It's a Gmail address. It's L-A-T-E-N-E-Y-C-K at gmail.com. Cool. And do you have a website? I do not have a website. Um, Our brewery has a website. It's ilfbc.com which is the acronym for India Matter Farmstead Brewery and Cidery. Cool. And it's a little bit in progress because we're a new business. Oh, well, that's all right. That's, we all have to start somewhere. Very good. <laughs> that's right. And you can also find the Brewery and Cidery on Facebook, and that's probably the more current oh, information yes. Perfect. as it's easier for us to maintain that than yeah. reconstruct our entire website. Oh, I heard that. So that's um, India Matter Farmstead Brewery and Cidery. Perfect. If you put that into Facebook, it'll come up. Fantastic. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.